We've begun a new series here. As most of you are aware, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at Church 101, seeking to bring us back to the basics of church, what the church is, how the church is to function. As Pastor Ken got us started in this series, we've emphasized the reality of church as family. We've learned that the church is the get-together of Jesus' family. And the family business, as it were, is magnifying God, loving one another, and witnessing to the world around us. And last week, we began considering what we do when we gather together as a family, as a church, Sunday by Sunday. The church magnifies God as we worship Him together in what Pastor Ken appropriately called family devotions. Today, we want to look at the family meal and partake of the family meal together, what we call the Lord's Supper. The main point this morning to see is that the church must engage the eyes of faith to see all that the Lord offers to us in the Lord's Supper. And so if you've got sermon notes, you'll see that we have eight points to cover this morning, and they all start with the word look. And so we're going to keep our heads on the swivel as it were, and we're going to find ourselves looking in different directions this morning, all drawn out of the Scriptures, pointing us to different focal points as we look together and then eat and drink together as well. The first three of our points this morning focus on where and how we need to look as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. And the last five are where we need to be focusing our attention as we take the Lord's Supper together. I'd like to begin this morning by reading the familiar words from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. We'll be looking at the less familiar context of these words in due course this morning. But 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26 is where we begin. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we come together to partake of the Lord's Supper, first we should look up. Look up. We look up to God in three ways. First, we look up with gratitude. We look up with gratitude. And this comes right out of 1 Corinthians 11, 24. As Paul recalls the tradition handed down from Jesus to him and then to the church in Corinth and to all churches ultimately, he reminds them that Jesus had given thanks in 1 Corinthians 11, 24. He'd given thanks for the bread, and then distributed it to his disciples. That, the Greek word translated given thanks is eucharisteo. And throughout church history, one of the titles given to the Lord's Supper has been the Eucharist. And that's just bringing the Greek word over into English. Churches have recognized throughout the centuries that it wasn't just an incidental fact that Jesus thanked God for the bread and wine at the meal. Rather, He was indicating that thanksgiving, gratitude, undergirded the whole celebration. Taking the Lord's Supper together is an opportunity for us to give thanks to the Lord, to God, not merely for the food, 
Not merely for the cracker and the juice, but for the death of Jesus, which the bread and the cup symbolizes. As we prepare to eat the bread and drink the cup, we should express our gratitude to God for the death of our Savior. So we look up to God and we pray, thanking the Lord for His sacrifice. Secondly, we look up to God with obedience. We look up to God with obedience. In verses 24 and 25, Paul repeats a command. Do this. Do this, he says. That's a command. Do this in remembrance of me. So we look up with a desire to please God by obeying this command. And doing this, eating this bread, drinking this cup in remembrance of him is an act of obedience. So we look up seeking to obey and please our Lord. Thirdly, we look up with the expectation of blessing. We look up with the expectation of blessing. In this sense, we hold out our empty hands to God and we expect to receive from Him a blessing in the midst of our obedience. Now notice the way I said that. He blesses us as we obey Him. He doesn't bless us to pay us or reward us for our obedience. Instead, there is blessing in obedience, not blessing for obedience. Jesus says it this way in Luke eleven twenty eight: Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So we look up to God, expecting Him to bless us as we obey His command to do this, to eat this bread and drink the cup. So that's looking up. Secondly, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we need to look around. We need to look around. We should be looking around as we take the Lord's Supper. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we should be looking around at each other. This eating and drinking is not an individualistic kind of thing. This is Paul's primary point in 1 Corinthians 11. But he set the stage for it already in 1 Corinthians 10 as he spoke of our participation or communion in Christ. In one of the other titles we use to refer to the Lord's Supper is communion. And it comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. We look around at each other in communion. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That word translated participation is the Greek word koinonia. In the King James Version, it's translated as communion. You may know that koinonia is often translated as fellowship. The fundamental idea of koinonia is the idea of sharing in something, sharing together. Paul is saying that we have a share in the death of Jesus. He goes on. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? A sharing in the body of Christ. Fellowship together in the body of Christ. We have communion together in the death of Jesus. But it's verse 17 that makes this communion aspect of the Lord's Supper most prominent. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. The one bread is Christ himself. It's important that we are eating the same thing and drinking the same drink because we believe in the same Savior and we have received the same salvation. 
We put on display our union together as one body when we take the Lord's Supper together this way. It is to be an expression of our unity as a body, as a family. Secondly, we look around with love. We look around with love. At the end of this letter, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. So in the context of this letter, that certainly includes what he taught the Corinthians to do together in chapter 11. Thus, we ought to look around with love toward each other as we prepare to eat the bread and drink the cup together. This is also reflected in 1 Corinthians 11, though he doesn't use the word love. In 1 Corinthians 11.33, we read, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That word translated wait for is a loaded term. It normally has connotations of hospitality and welcome. It's a warm term. We are to welcome each other in love, especially as we eat the bread and drink the cup together in the Lord's Supper. This is a moment that we can and should be particularly mindful of each other's needs, each other's vulnerabilities, each other's dependence on the Lord for everything. It is a moment to look around and really see each other. That's what discerning the body is all about. Look at verse 29, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. 29, discerning the body. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, you'll see the word damnation instead of judgment, and that translation leads us away from understanding Paul correctly here. There is no damnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this warning that Paul is giving is for believers. It's for the church. Paul uses the generic word for judgment here, not the stronger word for condemnation that he does use later in this passage. This warning is for us who are in Christ. As we'll see later, it's a warning of disciplinary judgment, not condemnation. Discerning the body has to do with discerning the church body looking around and really seeing each other as we really are. I wonder. Paul indicates here that the church in Corinth is not doing this properly. And I just have to wonder, are we doing any better than they did in the first century? When we come to the Lord's Supper, we are not to treat this as an individualistic act, as though it's just me and my cracker and my juice expressing my faith, worshiping my Lord by myself. No, we are to discern the body. But what does that mean? Verse 31 might clarify. Paul adds, But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. The Greek word translated here, judged truly, is the same word translated discerning in verse 29. The body, in verse 29, is parallel to the word ourselves in verse 31, or each other in verse 31. What does it mean to discern each other? What does it mean to discern the body, to judge ourselves truly? I think it means that we need to view each other as we really are, brothers and sisters united to the Lord Jesus. In the context of the Lord's Supper, 
the Lord's table, enjoying the celebration of the new covenant established in Jesus' death on the cross, it means that we look around and take notice of how Jesus died to pay for the sins of our brothers and our sisters. Let me say it this way. When we take the Lord's Supper together, it is more important, it is more important that we thank God for dying to pay for the sins of our siblings than it is to thank Him for dying to pay for our own sins. When I take the Lord's Supper, I thank God that Jesus died for Craig Mix. I thank God that Jesus died for Mike Stewart. I thank God that Jesus died to pay for the sins of Don Retberg. I thank God that Jesus died to pay for the sins of you guys in this room who are part of my family. My attention is turned to you and to each other rather than into myself. Look around and celebrate that Jesus died to save sinners other than yourself. That is what the Lord's Supper is for. Discern the body. Acknowledge the wonder of Him dying to pay for the sins of your brothers and sisters in this church. And I bet if you do that, you will find your love for those specific brothers and sisters increasing. Yes, thank God for sending Jesus to die for your sins. But also, thank Him for sending Jesus to die for the sins of your siblings in this church family when we eat the bread and drink the cup together. Thirdly, we do look inside. We also look inside. This has to do with self-examination. Paul does say that we must engage in some introspection, some self-examination as well. But this is not to be separated off from the looking around that we just talked about. Consider verses 28, verse 28 alongside 29. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. When Paul tells each of us to look inside, what are we to be looking for? We have a tendency to look inside ourselves, searching out any unconfessed sin. Or, connected with the concern of verse 27 about drinking and eating in an unworthy manner, we look for any sin that might make us individually unworthy. However, that is absolutely not what Paul is talking about. See how self-examination is connected with discerning the body. What we are to be looking for is any evidence of broken relationships in the church family. Are you harboring any bitterness or unforgiveness toward a brother or a sister in this church body? Is there unresolved conflict between you and someone else in this church? Are you cultivating division in this body? That's what we are to be looking for. Our concern in the Lord's Supper should be our relationship with others in this body. So what do we do? If, upon self-examination, we find something wrong. The Bible is very clear in addressing this question. We are to be pursuing unity. 
And Jesus tells us very clearly how to handle this. Pursue unity. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses this question to his Jewish disciples. It's important to remember their Jewishness at this point because he frames his instruction in terms of what they normally would be doing as Jews. Before we can apply what he says to our own situation, we need to recognize the original context. Consider Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Pause there. Jews would be accustomed to taking an animal or some grain, traveling to Jerusalem, and offering their animal or their grain offering as expressions of thanksgiving to seek or to seek atonement for sins at the temple. Jesus considers the possibility that when they arrive at the temple to offer their gift in worship to the Lord, they might suddenly remember something. They might suddenly have a recollection. The way he describes this could look two different ways. He says that you, mu- you remember that your sibling has something against you. That could mean that you have sinned and hurt your brother or sister, your sibling in God's family. You actually said something or did something that was wrong and hurt your family member, and you remember it at that moment. But the other way this could look is relevant as well. It may be that you did nothing wrong, but your brother or your sister feels that you did. They believe you did something wrong. They feel hurt by something you said or something you did, or they took offense, even though you didn't intend to hurt them. It is both of those scenarios that Jesus has in view here. What does he say to do? Verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do you see the urgency he places on reconciliation? Even before you offer your gift in worship, delay that act of worship in order to pursue unity with your sibling. That's how important Jesus considers unity in this family. And notice whose responsibility it is. If you remember that your sibling has something against you, whether you actually did anything wrong or not, it is your responsibility to pursue reconciliation. In the context of the Lord's Supper, if you examine yourself and you realize that someone is estranged from you because of something you said, something you did, or something you failed to do, Jesus says that you have a responsibility to deal with it. Seek to make it right as soon as possible. But later on, Jesus addresses the same situation from a different angle. In Matthew eighteen fifteen, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now Jesus has turned it around. If you're the victim, if someone has sinned against you, you have the responsibility to seek to make it right. When we hold these two passages together, Jesus lays the responsibility for reconciliation on the shoulders of both the offender and the offendee, both the perpetrator and the victim. Basically, he's saying, 
You are responsible to seek reconciliation. Wherever there is conflict, whenever there's tension between brothers and sisters in the church, you are responsible to pursue peace and reconciliation, whether you did anything wrong or not, and whether you are the victim or the perpetrator. Now, I get it. I am not naive about this. I have sinned and hurt people in the church, especially by my words. I have failed to speak when I should have, and I know what it's like to try to reconcile, to try to pursue peace, and to have the other party reject you. I know what that's like. And I struggle with knowing when love should cover a multitude of sins, and when I should just let something go and overlook someone's sin out of love and grace, and when confrontation and engagement needs to happen. I have not figured that out. Nevertheless, Jesus is clear. I am responsible, and so are you, to pursue reconciliation whenever there is conflict, hurt feelings, or disunity. That's what looking inside, self-examination, is really all about in the context of the Lord's Supper. So that's looking inside. Fourthly, and now as we take the Lord's Supper, we look back. And this is the more familiar to us. We look back in remembrance, first of all. In verses 24 and 25, we were commanded to do this in remembrance of me, Jesus. We eat the bread and drink the cup as a a reminder to spur to our memory of Jesus. It is a memorial meal. We are to remember... After all, that it is the Lord's Supper, after all, the Lord's Supper. We get that title from one place in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 11, 20, and 21, where Paul's chastising the Corinthians. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. He contrasts the Lord's Supper with his own meal, or literally his own supper, the same Greek word. The Corinthians were turning the Lord's Supper into an individualistic, self-serving affair. We'll look at how they were doing this specifically in just a few minutes. But eating this bread and drinking this cup is supposed to be a celebration of the Lord's Supper, looking back to what the Lord Jesus has done for us in His death on the cross. But remembering in the Bible is not merely about calling facts to mind or remembering events. Biblical remembering is about putting yourself in the events of the past, reenacting them. When we remember that the Lord's Supper looks back to the Last Supper that Jesus shared with His disciples before He was crucified... And when we remember that that last supper was a Passover meal, then we can understand how remembering is supposed to work. We need to see the Passover meal as the model for the Lord's Supper. Jesus made it clear that the last supper was a Passover meal when he said in Luke 22, 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Every year, the Jewish people sit down around a table as a family and remember how God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, in the Exodus, particularly focusing on that final night in Egypt when God sent the tenth plague. He sent His angel into Egypt to kill 
all the firstborn males in Egypt, human and animal. God had instructed the Israelites to kill a lamb, to take its blood and smear it over the archways of the entrances of their homes and to eat a quickly prepared meal, ready to flee Egypt in the middle of the night. When the angel saw the blood, he passed over that house, sparing the firstborn males in that home. Pharaoh, in anguished grief, finally sent the Israelites out of Egypt. When Moses gave instruction about the future celebration of this event in the annual Passover festival, even after they were living in the land of Canaan, he instructed them to have the father, the head of the household, explain the significance of the meal, how it pointed back to that event in Egypt. Even generations later, the father was supposed to tell his children how the Lord spared our houses as though they had actually been there in Egypt. Even generations later, that's biblical remembering. Likewise, Paul instructs us in Romans 6 that we have died with Christ. We have died with Christ. Paul can say, even as an individual in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. There's an old spiritual song that became well-known, sung by slaves before the Civil War. And the repeated line asks the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Biblically, we Christians answer heartily, yes, yes, we were there. Some songs put us there among the scoffers, in the crowds calling for his crucifixion. And that too communicates some truth. However, in the Lord's Supper, we reflect a more important truth. We put ourselves not merely in the crowd of scoffers, but we put ourselves on the cross next to Jesus. We were crucified with Christ. His death was the death that I deserve to die. And from the moment I trusted in Jesus, I was united to Jesus in such a way that His life, His death, and His resurrection counts as my own. Thus, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember that we have been crucified with Christ. Fifthly, we look at. We look at. We look at this cracker and this juice And we look with the eyes of faith. We express our faith. And we believe certain things when we eat this bread and drink this cup. First, we believe that Jesus is the host. Jesus is the host. 1 Corinthians 10.21, Paul refers to the Lord's Supper as the Lord's table. He writes, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord, the Lord's table, and the table of demons. Jesus is the host of this meal. Jesus is the host. What do we believe when we see Jesus hosting us? As host, He provides the food. He has provided His body and blood. He has given His life as a ransom for many. He has provided the requirements of the new covenant. He has established the new covenant by His self-sacrifice. Thus, when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we believe that Jesus has provided His own life, His death, to establish our right relationship with God. Also, He is the host. 
in that He welcomes us to His table. It annoyed the Jewish leaders during His three and a half years of public ministry in Israel that He was often seen eating with sinners. Guess what? He still eats with sinners today. He welcomes sinners to His table. And who else would He have to eat with if He didn't? Second, when we look at this cracker, we express our faith that Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the bread. As Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As hard as John 6 is to understand, and it was hard to understand when he first spoke the words, Jesus gave the keys to understand his meaning. He was speaking metaphorically throughout this teaching, but He gave the keys to the metaphors. Here, He indicates that coming to Him involves hungering for bread, thirsting for something to drink. These are metaphors for believing in Him. We believe that Jesus is the bread of life, the bread that provides eternal life, the bread that sustains eternal life. We must eat the bread, though, And that's where we go next. And that's what was so offensive and confusing for his original Jewish listeners. They couldn't get over the shock of his metaphors, his imagery. And they missed the clear, simple meaning of what he was saying. The eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood was an image for believing in him. And it carries over into our eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper. We believe that Jesus is the bread of life. We also believe that Jesus died for you. So take a moment and think individualistically, but just for a moment. It's important for us to believe that Jesus died for us, for me, for you, for us together. Believe that Jesus died for you when you take the cup. In John 6, 54 to 56, Jesus said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Partaking of Jesus, his his body as the bread of life, involves eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That is to say, believe that Jesus died for you, that His flesh was killed, His blood was shed, His bread was baked, if you will. As I said, Jesus gives the key to understand His imagery. A few verses earlier, in John six forty seven, He had said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now consider these verses together. If you'll look up on the screen on the next slide, You can see these verses together and notice the phrase has eternal life in both verse 47 and verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood equals whoever believes. Also compare verse 54 with verse 56 where both have whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. Thus, has eternal life equals abides in me and I in him. Abiding in Christ just means having, experiencing eternal life. 
Contrary to some popular teaching out there, abiding in Christ is not some advanced spiritual growth experience. It's not the key to spiritual growth. It is a metaphor for having eternal life. It's not some achievement that you get or some work that you do. If we can understand this from John 6, when we come to John 15, the vine and the branches passage where Jesus develops a different metaphor for the normal Christian life, and He highlights the idea of abiding in Him and He abiding in us, we don't have to be so confused about that passage. If you're not abiding in Christ, you're not a believer. If you don't, you don't know Jesus, you don't have eternal life. Here, however, in John 6, and for our purposes this morning, the point is simply that we must believe Jesus died for you. And the Lord's Supper provides us with an opportunity to express that faith in a unique, vivid way. Point six, we look outside. We also look outside. Looking outside is about proclamation. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. But let's consider who we're preaching to. We are proclaiming the gospel in the Lord's Supper to three groups. First, we proclaim to each other. We're proclaiming to each other. We need to see each other eat this bread and drink this cup because it reminds us, even as we're eating it and drinking it ourselves, that this is for all of us, not just for me as an individual. Secondly, we're proclaiming to unbelievers who might be visiting with us. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus this morning, you need to know that this is a family meal. This bread and this cup are for Christians. We'll see in just a moment that there's a warning about taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, but that warning is directed to Christians. If you don't know Jesus, the bread and the cup have no meaning for you. Now, if you, as a non-believer eat this cracker and drink this juice this morning, I don't believe you face any worse condemnation or judgment than you are already heading towards anyway. You are under the judgment of God, and you will continue to be under the judgment of God until and unless you embrace Jesus as your Lord, believing that His death has provided you personally with eternal life. As long as you are outside the family of God, you shouldn't partake of the family meal. Instead, you should watch and listen as this symbolic action is meant to paint a beautiful picture for you of what God has done for sinners. Also, we're proclaiming to our unbelieving children. That's why it's important for us to have our children here with us when we eat the bread and drink the cup so that they might see and might hear and might listen, that they might ask questions about what we're doing so that we can share the gospel with them. We parents don't like to think about our children as unbelievers. But until they believe, that is what they are. They need Jesus. And it is one of our greatest privileges as parents and as a church family to show them Jesus in the Lord's Supper in our preaching, in our Sunday school classes, and in our lives. We are proclaiming the Lord's death to unbelievers among us when we take the Lord's Supper together. 
Thirdly, we are also proclaiming to the, the gospel to a third group, the evil spiritual powers. Satan and his forces are watching what we do when we gather together as a church, and we have an opportunity to remind them of their doom. Russell Moore has described the Lord's Supper as a victory lap. You know what a victory lap is, right? After a runner has won a race, he might then run around the track one more time in celebration that he's won. In the Lord's Supper, we rub it in their noses, as it were, that Jesus has beaten them, that their doom has been sealed. Paul speaks to this in Ephesians 3.10, where he says it is through the church that God is making known His manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. One of the the ways God's multifaceted wisdom is on display in the church is when the church celebrates the victory Jesus won by eating the bread and drinking the cup together. We need to be reminded of that great victory, but it's also good to remind Satan and his forces. They cannot escape their doom because Jesus' death was decisive and cannot be overturned by anything the evil powers do from now until Jesus returns. That is part of our outward-looking proclamation. Point seven, we look forward. We look forward. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Taking the Lord's Supper together helps us look forward with anticipation, with hope, as it provides a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the messianic banquet that will take place after Jesus returns. Did you know there is a wedding invitation already with your name on it? We learn of these wedding invitations in Revelation 19.9. The angel said to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus will return. The slain Lamb will be seen as the victorious, conquering Lamb And we will share a meal with him after the conquest is completed. We, in our resurrected, glorified bodies, will share a meal with our Savior. The Lord's Supper is a foreshadowing, a foretaste of that great banquet to come. During Jesus' last supper with his disciples, he set the expectation in a curious way. Our hope is to drink with Jesus... And I don't mean for that to sound crass in any way, but this is how Jesus puts it in Matthew twenty six twenty nine. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Even as He welcomes us to His table now in the Lord's Supper, we truly look forward to that day when He will welcome us physically to His table. We will see Him face to face. We will be like Him. And we will celebrate with Him. Experience a measure of joy that we cannot fathom right now. As the Lord hosts us, even now, at His table, we look forward to His hosting in the future. And we will see Jesus uniquely on that day as the servant. Jesus the servant. Now, we know that Jesus is the suffering servant. He came not to be served, but to serve, to give His life as a ransom for many. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
to be seized, to be held on to, to be used for his own advantage. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. The servant of the Lord suffered in our place for our sins. But when he returns, we will see a new dimension of his servanthood. Jesus encourages his disciples to remain alert and ready for his return, comparing them to household slaves who are waiting for their master to return after he has completed his honeymoon. It's a parable. It's a metaphor. In Luke 12, 37, Jesus characterizes his return this way, Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have his servants recline at table And he will come and serve them. So when Jesus returns on the white war horse, dressed in his warrior armor, he will slay all those who remain in rebellion against him, all those who refuse to entrust their lives to his loving care. And then he will remove his armor and he will put on the robes of a slave and he will serve his slaves a meal. Wonder of wonders, the master acts as a slave. He will treat us as his honored guests. The Lord's Supper is meant to whet our appetites for that meal, for that experience. But finally, there's one more looking that we must attend to. We must also look out. You have to say it in that tone. Look out! As I've said, there's a warning edge to this passage. There's a warning we all need to hear and heed about partaking unworthily. The reason the Corinthians needed to look out was because they were failing to look around. We begin in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven to consider this partaking unworthily that Paul warns of. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does it mean to partake in an unworthy manner? Well, in the context, he has described what the Corinthians were doing, and that needs to be our starting place. Look at verses 18 to 22. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen to 22. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Then add to that the first part of verse 34. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. The problem is summed up by the word divisions. From reading the larger context, the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, we know that there were several different kinds of divisions in the church of Corinth. Here, the division is visible when they come together for the Lord's Supper. Before we sketch out what this looked like more specifically, notice what Paul says in verse 19. He acknowledges sinful, evil 
harmful divisions in the body. But at the same time, he recognizes that God uses these sinful, evil, harmful divisions for his own good purposes, particularly to make it clear who are genuine among them. That is to say, those who have received the Lord's approval. How are they seen in the midst of or in the aftermath of division in the church? Genuine believers, those who have received the Lord's approval by grace, are seen when they repent of sin and and believe appropriately to the gospel, respond appropriately to the gospel. So those who might be cultivating division in the body may be genuine believers, but the only way they will see, they will be seen as genuine believers is when they repent from their divisiveness. Those who refuse to repent, those who continue cultivating division, show themselves to be disapproved, disqualified. A word Paul uses in other places like 2 Timothy 3.8 to condemn false teachers. What Paul describes here indicates that the church in Corinth celebrated the Lord's Supper as part of an evening meal. From early church history and archaeological evidence throughout the Roman Empire, it's clear that the earliest church gathered together in the homes of wealthy Christians, wealthy church members. Their homes would be large enough to host up to 50 people and would be able to supply food and drink for those 50 people. What Paul describes here, however, is reflective of typical non-Christian pagan Roman practices. The wealthy homeowner would invite his rich buddies into the special dining room of his house. No more than 10 people could sit around a table in that special dining room. And Paul seems to describe how these rich Christians were satisfying their own hunger before the poorer church members were joining them for the gathering. For the working class, which would be the majority, and for the slaves, who would have been Christians and a part of their church perhaps, Sunday was not a day off from work. The church would gather in the evening, listen to the apostles' teaching, and share the evening meal together. Supper, dinner. At the conclusion of that meal, they would eat the bread and share the cup. That was the Lord's Supper. The poorer church members would arrive to gather with the church after they got off work. Or for Christian slaves, after they'd finished their daily household duties for their masters. And they would be expecting the wealthy Christians to provide them with food. They would not have had time or money to provide their own meals. And the earliest church had gained a reputation for caring for the practical needs of the poor in the community. Especially those who were Christians. But in Corinth, the wealthy cultivated a division between themselves and the poorer members of the church. They would arrive after the wealthy people had arrived, had already begun eating. And indeed, some would have indulged in the wine to such a degree that they were getting drunk in the church gathering. When the poorer members arrived, the food was nearly gone, the wine was nearly gone, and they had to stand outside in the atrium. They could hear the conversations, they could hear the preaching of the word, but they were stuck outside. Historically, it seems that this setting was the reason that the Lord's Supper was separated from a full meal. It wasn't merely pragmatic. Churches recognized Paul's chastisement of the church in Corinth, and they thought they could eliminate the possibility of being guilty of what the church in Corinth was doing if they celebrated the Lord's Supper apart from a meal. 
Did that fix the problem? Is it possible for us to be guilty of partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Of course it is. Paul says that these wealthy Christians were despising the church of God. And we can certainly do that as well. The problem in Corinth can be our problem today. We despise the church of God when we cultivate divisions in our body. We despise the church of God when we gather with our family with a self-focused, selfish attitude that only cares about what I get out of the experience of church. We despise the church of God when we discriminate against another believer, whether because of social status, skin color, family background, work conditions, whatever. We despise the church of God when we refuse to pursue reconciliation with brothers and sisters in the body. And when we despise the church of God, we cancel the Lord's Supper. We turn it into my supper. That's the flip side of not discerning the body. And that takes us back into verses 29 and 30. When we act like this, when we cultivate these kinds of attitudes, when we treat each other with disdain and disunity, we invite God's discipline to our church. Inviting God's discipline to our church. Verses 29 and 30. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And look at verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In verse 30, Paul indicates that sickness and death had come to the church in Corinth as God's disciplinary judgment because of the way the wealthy were cultivating this division with the poor. If they had discerned the body, they would have recognized that Jesus died for those poorer Christians. And they should not be treated any differently because of their social status or for any other reason. Those who discern the body don't despise the church. But what is Paul saying here exactly? I think Paul is expressing a prophetic insight about what was going on in the church of Corinth. He's not saying this is always the case. He knew that many members of the church in Corinth were suffering from sicknesses. And some of them had died from these illnesses. The Lord revealed to him the truth about that situation. Sickness and death were God's agents of disciplinary judgment against the church because of their divisions. I used to read this as saying that God struck the guilty rich people with sicknesses and even killed some of them as a discipline for their sin. However, I now think that reading is too individualistic and goes beyond what Paul actually says. Instead, I think Paul is saying that God sent sickness and death to the church body in Corinth as a discipline for the church body, not as corrective discipline for individuals who were cultivating these divisions. Think about it like this. The Lord sought to wake the rich Christians who were mistreating others in their church family by allowing some of the others in the body to become sick and even to die. The Bible is consistently less individualistic than we tend to be in our thinking. The Bible consistently paints a picture of our real unity together as a body. When I sin, it affects you, even if you don't know what my sin is. When you sin, 
it affects me, even when I don't know what your sin is. We are bound together that tightly. When one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers together. Paul will say those very words in the next chapter. How would you feel if you knew that someone in our church family developed cancer because of your sin? Think about it like that. Now, maybe you think that's all unfair, that God would never do something like that. And maybe we could never know whether that were the case with any certainty. But I do think we should recognize that God often uses suffering in our brothers and sisters to wake us up to get our attention, to turn us to repentance for our sins. However this plays out, Paul wants us to take our sin seriously, especially when it's an interpersonal sin. God cares about how we treat each other. I see children in the atrium. They're welcome to come on in. Now is the time, so come on in and rejoin your parents. As we... Get ready to take the Lord's Supper together. We are going to do it a little bit differently. I want to close our thoughts on 1 Corinthians 11 first with the words of a fellow by the name of Andrew Nicelli. He says, To examine oneself does not mean that a celebrant should scrupulously detect whether he's guilty of any sin at all and then confess such sin in order to make himself worthy to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper presupposes that no one is worthy. That's the whole point of the gospel. Suggesting that we not observe the Lord's Supper if we have any unconfessed sin in our lives turns the table from happy to sad. But the Lord's Supper should be a happy occasion that celebrates the gospel. When we look at the full contents of 1 Corinthians 11, we may come away with a weighty warning. And I wish I didn't have to end on that note. As Nicelli says, the Lord's Supper should be a happy occasion that celebrates the gospel. And I want that note to always be maximized when we come to the Lord's table. We are going to take a moment and pray. And we're going to pray a little bit differently maybe than you're accustomed to, pl- to praying. I'm going to ask you to join me in not bowing your heads and closing your eyes, but doing exactly the opposite. Lift your heads up and look up to God and open your eyes. Try not to stare at the lights. That could be painful. But look up. Keep your eyes open and pray with me. And give thanks to the Lord for what this cup and this juice represents. So pray with me. Father, we do give you thanks. We rejoice in what you have done for us. We are unworthy sinners. And we thank you that you have welcomed us to your table. Would you fill us with joy in this moment, even as we hear the words of this warning from your scripture? Help us to take it seriously, but help us to feel the weight of joy for what you have done for us. You have bridged the gap. You have brought reconciliation into the world through the death of your own son. You have loved us that much. Help us to feel that as we examine ourselves. Help us to feel that as we take of the bread and we partake of the cup together. Fill us up with joy and satisfaction, not because our bellies are full, because they won't be, but because you have saved us. You have given us your Savior 
and he nourishes us. We live not on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so thank you for sustaining us by the gospel itself. Help us to take worthily. Help us to look around and consider each other and love each other well in this moment. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Now as we take this, I want you to open the top part of this where the bread is. And I want you to hold it in your hand for just a moment. And I want you to look around at the people that you can see. You don't have to crane your neck too far. Look around. Look at the faces of your brothers and sisters. And think in your mind, or even say out loud, I thank the Lord that He died for you. And take this bread with me. The cup on the other side has grape juice in it. Fruit of the vine, reddish liquid. And it represents not simply the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross, but the new covenant. The relationship with God that we all have because Jesus died for our sins. We can be rightly related to God because someone died. A perfect man died who didn't deserve to die. And He paid for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins. And so when we drink this together now, we remember that somebody died for me. And not just somebody. Not anybody in this room could do that. But the Savior, the man who was fully God, the man who never sinned once in attitude, action, thought, or anything. And he paid for all of mine, all of that. All of my failures to speak well of him, to speak well to you, to speak faithfully the word of God. All of my failures, all of your failures in your relationships, he paid for those. He died to pay for those. And so you are free, free of condemnation. And so we drink celebrating. So drink with me. I'm simply going to pray to close our time together. We might have a couple of announcements and then we're going to move into ABF and Sunday school after that. Pray with me once again. Father, thank you again for these elements, these reminders. We taste it in our mouths. It's not a good taste necessarily, but we taste it. Our bodies are activated right now in an act of remembrance and worship. And so we give you thanks. And we rejoice We rejoice with all that we have, even though some of us are in sorrow right now because of sin, because of brokenness, because of pain in our bodies. We can rejoice even as we are sorrowful because you have died to pay for our sins. You have redeemed even these broken bodies and you've given us a promise that is to come. Full resurrection glory. Fellowship with you unhindered by anything. Broken bodies or broken spirits. You heal it all. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We do have some announcements announcements this morning. Um, And if you just direct your attention to the bulletin, 
uh, is really where we'll be. Um, but there's a lot of things coming up, which is really exciting. Um, all of you by now, or at least most of you will know by now that uh, due to several different factors, uh, we're not going to be holding our one-day VBS this year as we had planned. But we're looking forward to getting things going for next summer and getting back to our week-long thing. So I just wanted everybody to make sure you were aware of that if you hadn't heard yet. Uh, but uh, next Saturday, we are still having our epic preview night. Uh, I want to talk about this for a moment. This is really just going to be a time to invite the teens that you know. And I put that, not only the teens that are here, but also maybe you have grandchildren or children that are teenagers that aren't here even today, or you know others, or you have friends that have teenagers. We'd love them to join us at this event next Saturday, starting at 4.30 on August 7th. Um, just a couple of hours where we're just going to introduce people to what a night of youth group might look like. And it's just a ho- hopefully to get some more teens to know what's going on up here, and we'll go from there. So that's August 7th. That's next Saturday. They're this coming Saturday, I guess I would say. Uh, Rochester Red Wings game is coming up on August 20th, but today is the last day to sign up. So the sign-up is in the back. If you have any questions, you can talk to Mike Lasnick. Uh, Women's Refresh is having a... Hawaiian Luau, uh, so that is coming up August 14th, so again, make sure you notice that. Uh, and then probably one of the most important announcements for this morning as we look forward to August 22nd. August 22nd, we are going to have a uh, membership meeting that's going to take place right during the ABF hour, so after the morning service is over, uh, to to discuss and to vote on all the, the new proposal of the new constitution and what we've done to revise that. And again, if you haven't got a copy yet, they're in the back. You can get a full copy that's just the Constitution as it is and also one that's side-by-side if you would prefer that to see what's changed. Uh, Again, I want to stress to everyone that if you see anything, and this is the reason why we're giving it out over a month ahead, if there's anything that causes any kind of concern for you, that you would please talk to an elder, uh, preferably today or tomorrow because we have a meeting tomorrow night and we can make any changes we need to make and then still have it out in time so that we can have a vote on the 22nd. So if there are any concerns that you have, please today or as I said, at some point tomorrow, give one of us a call, send us an email, whatever you need to do to let us know so that we can take those concerns into consideration before the the vote happens. But again, we do want everyone to know that that's August 22nd during ABF. Members will be here to vote, but even if you're not a member, you're welcome to be here to uh, to, to watch, I guess, would be the word. Um, and finally, just so everyone does save the date, as you see on the back of the bulletin, we are having a church picnic, picnic this summer. Friday night, August 27th, it's going to be our church picnic, and we'll have a little cornhole tournament that day as well. So more information's coming, but for now, if you have a calendar, if you're keeping it, if you got your phone, put it down, church picnic, August 27th, it's going to start at 6 at night on Friday the 27th, so make sure you mark that down. All right, that's all I have for this morning. We'll just take a couple minutes of a break, and then Justin will come back up and we'll get into ABF. Thanks.